In Matthew chapter 13 in your Bible today, I want to talk to you about the value of the church. The value of the church. Do you know how to value a church? Do you know how God values a church? The value of the Florence Baptist Temple or the value of any church I could be, talk, I could be speaking about. Matthew chapter 13 in your Bible. I'm not going to have you stand as I read because I'm going to read a very brief passage, and I want to do a little explanation of it before I get into that. The other day, I flipped open my phone, heard it beep, and I looked. uh, There was an ad from some church marketing company, which I know you get flooded with those on your phone as well from various sources. And so, I looked at the screen and read the ad there briefly before I deleted it. The ad on my phone was promoting what it called the digital church. Pastors, attention, we want you to consider the digital church. We want you to understand that those people today in the world around you are too busy to come to church, the ad read. It said, Lots of people have left the churches across America. There's a disturbing trend of people who formerly were very, very faithful and are no longer faithful. They're walking away. So how are you going to connect with them? How are you going to communicate to them? And the idea was that I buy their program, and, of course, they would tell me how to solve all that. And they said, don't kid yourself, preacher, People are not going to go to a brick-and-mortar church in the future. Is that true? Is the church for which Jesus died and shed his blood going to cease to exist as we have always known it, where people gather together? The very word church means an assembly. Are people no longer going to assemble? You can't assemble digitally. So are, is, is the church doomed Is it so undervalued today that people would rather go play ball, go to the lake, go visit, go whatever they do, go to the stock car race, go watch television, go take a trip, go camp out, uh, whatever they do? Are we at a point now where the church's existence is threatened because of the busyness, the hurriedness of life, because that all the businesses stay open, that people have to work. A large percentage of our people work at least one or two weeks a month. Is it all doom and gloom and uh, misery for the church in the future? And what would it be like if there were no churches? What would it be like if there were no Florence Baptist Temple? What would it be like if you drove down Highway 301 And uh, you looked over here, and there's 52 acres of bare ground. At some point, we just couldn't do it anymore. We bulldozed it off, loaded it up, carried it to the dump, and now it's uh, being used for some other purpose. What about that? You ever think that could happen? It happens 4,000 times a year in America right now. 4,000 times a year, churches go out of business. Now, other churches start, but uh, how much is, how valuable is the church? This guy says, I'm going to have to put out podcasts, 
have sessions during the week when I get on the camera and sit and talk to people, and they'll watch on their computers. But that's not a church. That's a religious message. But that's not assembling God's people for the purpose that they're to be assembled. That will never send any missionaries. That will not reach many people because they won't give it full attention even while they're watching something else is going on in the room. And most of all, there will be no relationships, zero relationships. It will further isolate and divide people. I hope that guy's not right. I don't think he's right. Because in the book of Matthew chapter 13 in your Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ told us about the whole kingdom of God, the whole idea of the kingdom of God, from the time he was on the earth until the time that the judgment of God occurs upon the earth to the end of time. Now, Matthew chapter 13 is a series of seven parables. And think of these as all just one great unified parable. It has one theme throughout. What is the theme of Matthew 13? And by the way, Matthew 13 If you're a serious Christian, one of the single most important chapters in the Bible for you to know and understand the content of it. I mean, I'd put it right up there in the top five or so in the whole New Testament. And so, in Matthew 13, we see these seven parables. It begins uh, in verse number three of Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower. And we've made much of that. In fact, we really are celebrating that this year. And it says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. You have to go all the way down to verse number 37 to find out who that sower actually is. And though we are sowers, in a sense, the sower spoken about here is actually Jesus Christ. Verse 37, He that sowed the good seed originally is the Son of Man. And the sower sows the seed in a field. And if you will note, the field is the world, the entire world. The earth is the field in which the seed is sown. And you'll also find out that the seed is the Word of God. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there's an outline running through here in these seven parables. And, for example, look in verse 24, the second parables, the kingdom of God is like to a man that sowed good seed in his field. And in verse 31, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of God phrase shows up over and over. In verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like to treasure. In verse 45, the kingdom of God is like to a pearl. In verse 47, the kingdom of God is likened to a net. So you see, there's one theme running through here, and it's the kingdom of God is like, and then it goes into a parable, and it gives us a dissertation of that parable. And you put them all together, all seven parables, and here's what you'll have. You'll have an outline, and the outline deals with this. The outline tells us in Matthew 13, this is all in one chapter. Matthew 13, it says, this is what God has been doing what God is doing, and what God will be doing in the future. It's a prophetic passage as well as being an historical passage as well as a current passage. And so 
in verse 45, let's read our text today. Again, I'm going to pick out this one this morning. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man who is seeking goodly pearls and who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So who is the man? Well, the man in verse 45 is the same man in verse 37 as the Lord Jesus Christ, the great merchant man, the Lord Jesus himself. And what does the pearl of great price represent? The pearl represents all true churches. The pearl represents all true churches. If you get that, you'll have it. You'll have the, the interpretation will be logical as you go through all of the uh, passages here. Now, why do I say it represents true churches? Well, first of all, both the pearl and the church come from a living source. Both of them come from a living source. You know how a pearl is formed, don't you? And a little oyster is crawling around on the bottom of the ocean, the sea, literally grubbing in the mud in the very lowest possible place he could be, dirty and filthy, representing the world. And as he is there, there's a little grain of sand somehow penetrates his shell and gets in there, and it begins to bring him pain and suffering. He secretes this substance called mother of pearl, a liquid that his body produces to alleviate the pain, to take the rough edges off of the sand. And as he secretes the mother of pearl, the pearl is slowly and gradually formed. And the longer it stays there, the more that it grows. And you'll have all various types of quantities and qualities of pearls that are formed in the little oyster. But the point is this. It grows as a result of pain and suffering. The pearl is a product of pain and suffering, and so is the church. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave up the glories of heaven, stepped down from the throne of grace. He came to this world as a baby, and he came and he suffered. He suffered from the day he was born because look of the condescension. Look what he gave up to come here. To, be, to become a man, to become a human being. And he lived here. And you know how he was rejected, how he was hated, how people talked about him and scorned him and how he was ridiculed and how he was physically even maltreated. And then there came the greatest suffering of all. He went to the cross of Christ. And there he hung on the cross naked in shame, tortured and hurt in every way, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He bore the sins of all of us upon himself so that sin would be paid for in the mind of God. And then, after three days in that tomb, he resurrected from the grave. But the church was born in the life of Jesus Christ as he paid the price of pain and suffering himself. Another unique thing about a pearl is a pearl is a unity. You can take silver and gold and melt them down and reshape them completely. You can even cut a diamond if you know how to do it and shape a beautiful stone for a lady's hand or whatever. 
But a pearl, you can't cut it or melt it or divide it. It is one unity. If you try to shape it, it will shatter and it will be completely destroyed. The unity of the pearl speaks of the unity of the Lord's church because when the church is not unified, absolutely unified, when that unity is shattered, it has no value whatever. It's unique in that sense among human institutions. And so the pearl represents all true churches. It had its origin from a living source, and so did the Lord Jesus Christ, and so did the church in the Lord Jesus. The pearl represents the unity of the church. It also is very, very valuable. And so today, if you go and buy a high-quality pearl, it will be of immense value. We were in Hong Kong a number of years ago, and when we were there, uh, we looked at some pearls because everywhere you go in Hong Kong, they're selling pearls, and, they're, and all kinds and descriptions and prices and so on. And I found out that these young men over there, they dive down into the water with a little basket. They don't carry a lung and so on. They just hold their breath and dive down there, and they find these pearls, and they bring them up to the surface, and then they're cleaned and they're polished, and they sell them there in the shops and the souvenir stores along the streets of Hong Kong. And they're of immense value. When you buy a high-quality pearl, it's a beautiful but a very expensive thing. And that reminds me of the church again, that the Lord Jesus Christ loved the church. He valued the church. He considered it of such value that the Bible says he gave his very blood for the church. Can you imagine that? Christ loved the church, and he died for the church. It's the only institution for which God Almighty would give his life and that is the New Testament church, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, chapter 20 and verse 28, there's a very interesting statement. The apostle Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus, elders being the pastors, the leadership of the church. And as he speaks to those men, and they're the head of one local church, just like the Florence Baptist Temple over in Ephesus. And you know what Paul said? He said, you feed the church of God feed. What did he mean by that? He meant that you stand and you take a Bible and you give an exposition. You give an explanation of the Scripture. You teach the people and train the people, and you develop the people through the Word of God so that the people know truth. People begin to develop discernment. They know the difference in darkness and in light. You feed their souls. When they walk out of the building, elders, I want those people to know, I want them to be nourished on the spiritual food of the Word of God. The milk, the simple things, and the meat, the more, uh, the more in-depth teachings of the Word of God. And then he said to the elders, you feed the church of God, listen to this phrase, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, I hear people say, well, he wasn't talking about a local church. Yes, he was. Just read the context there. Yes, he was. He said that Christ purchased the church, referring to the church at Ephesus, with his own blood. And if you believe that and you understand that, my friend, you will immediately, the Florence Baptist Temple will grow in its importance in your mind. 
because there would have been no Florence Baptist Temple, and there would be no other true church anywhere on the planet were it not for the purchase price of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how important, that's how valuable the church is to the Lord Jesus. Wow, that overwhelms me. I, I, I'm, in, in all my years of preaching, I never thought that through like that before. But that elevates the church to a status that no other human institution can have. That it's bought and purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how valuable is the church to you and to me? I read an interesting study that got me thinking about this. There's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. His name is Rom Kanan. And he is a sociologist who talks about the, uh, the, the contribution that various institutions make to society. He has been studying, now listen to this, the economic impact of churches on, their com- on the communities they serve since 1997. So now for about, what, 22 or 3 years. He's been studying. It's the economic impact. He's not a Christian. He doesn't claim to be a Christian. This is an economic impact study. How does a church in a community affect that community economically? Because you can measure economics. It's a little different than measuring spiritual qualities. And he evaluated the churches on the following factors. He calls it their economic halo, the economic halo that the church spreads through the community. And so he says, number one is the stimulus that the local church makes to the local economy. For example, churches provide jobs. Between our church and our school here, we provide about 120 full and or part-time jobs in this community. So that in itself is an economic benefit to our community. But of course, we spend all the money, you know, we buy carpet, we buy pews, we buy stuff every week from all over the community. So the economic impact stimulates the local economy. He says that's a great value. But then he goes further, and this is where it got interesting to me. He talks about the savings to the community that good churches produce, that through teaching and training and developing our people with moral values, that that becomes a great benefit to the community. Now, the reason he did the study was because in the state of Pennsylvania where he was studying this, the state was threatening to take away the tax exemption to churches. And you hear that periodically. And you'll hear the the atheist groups and so on say, oh, the churches shouldn't have a tax exemption. That's not right. Everybody else has to pay taxes. Why don't they have to pay taxes? And you've you've all heard that. Well, the reason is that the founding fathers back when all this came into being said, these churches provide such a service that we're not going to charge them taxes because if they were all to go out of business, we would have so many moral social problems to deal with that we'd be unable to even afford to deal with them. So don't charge the churches taxes so they can put that money into the lives of their people. It was a common sense economic decision in, in, in many ways. And so when we are faithful, teaching our little boys and girls and bringing them up, teaching our men and women, teaching our young couples the basics of morality, the 
simple Ten Commandments and other moral values and virtues that we're teaching, there is an impact in the community on that. Now, I'll show you an example of it right here. We have a young woman, and I haven't spotted her today. Usually she sits right here, but her name is Juliana Battenfield. She is an attorney. She works for the solicitor's office downtown. And I talked to Juliana the other day. She came to me and she said, I need to come in and talk to you a few minutes because we're having an explosion of domestic violence in the city of Florence that we're dealing with over here in the solicitor's office. She said, I work full-time every week, all day, every day on domestic violence cases. Now they've hired a second attorney who is working with me on nothing but domestic violence cases. There are two attorneys working full-time in our community on nothing but prosecuting domestic violence cases. Who's paying for that? You are, aren't you? You with me? You awake? You're paying for that, aren't you? And uh, what would it be like if we didn't need those two attorneys to, to prosecute those cases? Because the people that go to church in Florence actually practice the Christian faith. Because if you're a Christian, you don't hit anybody except in defense of your life. And that a man or a boy would grow up thinking that it's all right to hit a woman is unthinkable if he's had Christian moral training and values. I ought to have a better amen than that on that point. I mean, it ought to be resounding. We ought to shake the walls here on that. Because that's such an egregious, horrible thing when you see some of these poor, battered women. Well, we've got such a huge population today not going to church. They're not getting that training. Where are they going to get that training? They're going to get that training only if they're in a good family and only if they are in a good church. And where else are you going to get it? They don't sell that at Walmart, ladies and gentlemen. So the church benefits the entire community. The counseling that it provides, the training that it provides, Professor Canaan said, he calculated, and I don't know how he did this, so don't come up and ask me because I can't explain it. I'm just telling you his report. He, he calculated that preventing a divorce saves the community $18,000. Court costs and all the other things that go along with it. He talked about addictions programs where churches offer those. And I'm so thankful and proud of our addictions program here at the church. Friday nights, every Friday night of the year, even on Christmas Eve, 150 people meet over there in the chapel, and they talk about learning to solve the problems of addictions that have come into their life. 94 of them came back this morning on a Sunday morning. Some of them go to church elsewhere, but they're in our program here. And so, how much is that worth to the community? I don't know. I can tell you one thing. Every time a person gets off of drugs or alcohol or some life-controlling addiction, I can tell you we're saving our entire community a whole lot of money with crime and with hospitals and all other kinds of costs that are accrued to that. It runs into the tens of thousands of dollars of savings with every single addict. And then he says, churches offer recreational programs. 
Florence Baptist Temple provides recreational services to 700 children or more every year. Yesterday, we wound up our spring soccer season, and there was about 150 little boys and girls out there playing soccer, and uh, that's a service we offer. Do you know that 60% of those people don't go to this church? And that's good. That's the way we want it because um, we want to have an opportunity for outreach with people. And then he talked about churches that provide educational services, and our church does all of those. 589 children are enrolled in Florence Christian School. The truth is, if we were to close the Florence Christian School, District 1 would have to raise the money and build another school. That's a school, 600 kids. How much money do we save our community by providing that level of Christian education? Now, the professor, Ram Kanan, made no attempt to measure spiritual impact because you can't measure that. But then I think about the pastors who've come out of here and the missionaries. I think about our deacons who faithfully serve every week. I think about our Sunday school teachers who visit and work around this community here. The 150 of them or so were out yesterday morning visiting people, uh, gearing up for the Easter season and all the work and the services they do, and how much does that benefit our entire culture here? A man told me a year or two ago who was addicted to heroin, and now he's clean and has been clean for years, and he looked at me, and he tears welled up in his eyes, and he said, Pastor, I owe my life to that church because that church without it I was on the road to destruction. I don't have to convince him of the value of a good church in his life. Now, how valuable is the church to you? What if our church suddenly ceased to exist? It happens 4,000 times a year in America. How valuable is the church? But the guy in the article on my phone trying to sell me the advertising said that the uh, traditional church is no longer relevant. It's no longer relevant. So how valuable is the church? And my second question is, is the church still relevant even? Are we sitting in a dinosaur, a concept that it will soon be gone from America? I don't think so. I hope not. Pray God not. You wouldn't want to live in a town where there was not, a, not churches. I've heard that all my life, and I've begun to think about that more. Nobody would want to live in a town where there were no churches, where people have no moral training, where there is no teaching on love and joy and peace and, and, and dealing with your problems from a from a spiritual standpoint, nobody would want to live in a, in a community like that. In the past, the church was the center of community life. Those were better days, and that was before I came along. Go to Charleston, and you see the four corners, and one of those corners is represented by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Go up to Palmyra, New York, and it's probably the model of all. On one corner is a Baptist church, on one corner a Presbyterian church, on one corner a Methodist church, and one corner I think it's a Catholic church. Four corners, and all of them have a church sitting within just a few yards of each other. But it was, it, the city planners planned it that way. They wanted to create a community where the very heart of the city, the crossroads of the two main thoroughfares, and on each corner, there was a house of worship, a house of God. And they wanted that to be the center of their life. And we know that in the pioneer days and coming through the Civil War era and up until probably into the early 1900s, the church was the center of life. People went there for their recreation. They went there for their social life. And then culture began to change. And Today, there's so many distractions, so many activities, so much competition. Charles Spurgeon preached, and there was not even a light burning in town unless you lit a candle. And today, everything is wide open, competing for the hearts, the minds, the interest of the people, sports, entertainment work, commerce, business, politics. Everything is running full bore all week long, and Sunday is no exception. Probably 10 or 15% of the people who go to this church are working today somewhere because they have to earn a livelihood. It wasn't like that in the past. And I've watched it in the lives of our people. It breaks my heart. People who used to be here all the time, now they're here part of the time. Because you see, when you're away from the fire, you cool off. And I don't care how well-intentioned you are. I've told people that on their sickbed. I've told them, you know what? You can backslide on a hospital bed because you know what? You're so focused on getting well and so when you would think that that would be a time when people would really draw much closer to the Lord. Some do, but not necessarily. And I've watched people be out for six weeks with surgery and never come back to church or get so far away from God and their whole spiritual life just fell apart. Is the church still relevant in this time when everything is pulling, everything in town, it seems like, is pulling people away from the Lord's house? Well, and we hear, we hear from like this marketing company. The church is no longer relevant. You are going to have to have a digital church, gather people over your network and so on. Is that really what the Lord had in mind? The man said in his ad, to many people, church is boring. To many people, church is boring. You know, I went to my doctor the other day. This true story, just this past week, I had to have a little checkup. And you know what? I, you know what they did to me? They put me in a bare room. And it was cold in that room. Might have been comfortable for them. I was, my teeth were chattering. And I wanted to tell them, you could at least put a picture on the wall. The only thing on that wall, do you know what was on that wall? A poster that said, are you depressed? And I said, yes, because I'm sitting in this stupid room. Yes, this is depressing, and I'm waiting there. Is he going to tell me I'm going to live or am I going to die? You know, I don't know. 
Yes, I'm depressed. You've got the most depressing atmosphere in town. Pipe some music in here. Do something, but just sit here and vegetate. But you know what? I'll go back because I didn't go there to get entertained. I went there to stay well. I didn't go to be entertained. I went there to stay well. And they're not always necessarily the same thing as I found out from experience. The church is boring. Listen to me. If amusement and entertainment are your primary values. But if your primary values, you want to know God and you want to get his answers and his truth for your life, it's the most relevant thing in the world. If you want relationships with good people, where else do you go to get them? Think about those things. How could it be boring to listen to someone tell me that the Creator who spun the universe into existence loves me, knows me, cares about me, died for me, and wants to have a relationship with me. That's pretty exciting stuff, I would think, wouldn't you? That's pretty exciting stuff. I don't know how you could be bored with that. Some godly, respected leaders in our country today have spoken to this. Chuck Swindoll said, we live in a time with a lot of technology and media. We can create things virtually that look real. We have high-tech gadgets that were not available to previous generations. And we learned that we could attract a lot of people to church if we use those things. I began to see that happening about 20 years ago. It troubled me then, and it's enormously troubling to me now. Because the result is we are building an entertainment mentality in the church. And it's leading to biblical ignorance. It's a constant struggle to, divine, to define relevance by the Bible instead of by the world's and Hollywood's standards. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts people. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. And Brett McCracken said, true relevance is seeking the true faith that transcends all boxes and all labels. Things that are permanent are not faddish or fickle or trendy. They're solid. The word relevant, however, implies temporariness. I think we need to face up to the truth that nothing temporal is really all that is relevant in the long run, and true relevance lasts, end of quote. So what is it to be relevant as a church? If we're always changing or chasing relativity or relevancy, if we're always chasing relevancy, we will always be modifying and changing to the point that people will always be in a state of flux, morally and spiritually. 
Let me give you an illustration, and I'll finish. You've heard of Vincent Van Gogh, haven't you? He was one of the old master's painters, greatly respected across the world. As a young man, Van Gogh wanted to be a priest. He went to college, and he failed the examination and was unable to be a priest. So he became a part of a Methodist group over in Holland and in Amsterdam. And he failed at that as well. There were problems there, and they rejected him. And he went to Paris, and he had this enormous talent to paint, and he became one of the world's renowned painters. But he lived a life of depression and darkness, and he killed himself when he was still a young man, rejected by two different, quote, Christian groups. Well, he painted a picture of the church where he lived, a Paris suburb, Alvaire. Here's the painting. And I threw it up there so you could see how he reacted and how he felt about the Christian faith and whether he thought the church was relevant or not. First of all, you'll notice the church is unattractive as it can be. There's no, that's no pearl up there, is it? That's not a beautiful, beautiful, attractive thing. It's an ugly, grotesque, dark thing. You will notice that it's dark, that there's no light streaming from the church at all. You will notice the only light is in the yard in the front on those wild flowers, but everything around the church is dark and foreboding. You will notice that the windows don't have any light behind them on the inside, and they don't have any light <clears throat> coming from them going to the outside. But the most peculiar feature of all that church is there's no doors. Nobody can come in and nobody can go out. It's isolated. Whoever's inside stays inside. Whoever's outside stays outside. You will notice there's a path going up there and it forks. It doesn't go into the building. It goes by the building and around the building. The path of life, normal activities of life, just don't connect with the church. The church isn't relevant to Van Gogh. And then you will notice a woman, a lonely figure. And there's nobody at that church seeing this, this woman come in her loneliness and reaching out to her. She's on her own. The church doesn't care. That's Van goes portrayal of the church in his day. How would Van Gogh depict the churches of America today? And how would Van Gogh depict the Florence Baptist Temple if he were to come here and attend it for a few weeks? Would the doors be open? Would the path, the highway of life go straight in? Or would it circumvent the building and bypass it altogether. No connection with the real world. Well, thank God the light's still on, the Baptist temple. Thank God it is. The doors are still open, about 28 or 30 of them. Thank God that there's a path that goes straight in the doors. You can access it. It's not hard to get in. It's not difficult to get out. And in the last 17 months, 
Look on your program, if you will, there, the Andrew Report. 6,598 people have been witnessed to that have, the reports have been turned in. So the seed is still being sown and the lights are still on. 787 people have been brought to church by the people who reported that during that period of time. 66,382 tracts have been given out. Boy, we've sown a lot of seed. And some of that seed's going to come up. We had planned today to have a testimony. The testimony was going to be by Shirley Birch. Shirley was unable to be here. She's ill right now and facing a lot of problems. But Shirley was our first African-American church member. And Shirley came here in the 70s. Do you know why she came? Somebody at work handed her a copy of a gospel tract. Shirley is evidence that you don't know where those tracks go and how God's going to use them. Weeks and days and months later, Shirley read that track. She became so under conviction, she will tell you when she gives her testimony. We have it on video, but I, I had planned on using it and closing the sermon with the illustration, so I have to do it. But Shirley took that track home and started reading that track. She laid across the bed. She locked the door so her children wouldn't come in and bother her. She read that tract. She had been afraid of dying, afraid of meeting God, afraid of being able to have her sins forgiven. And Shirley Birch laid on her bed reading that tract, What Must I Do to Be Saved, by Dr. John R. Rice. And she got down on her knees and trusted Christ. She wrote Dr. Rice a 10-page letter telling him, that she had been saved through that track, that she lived in Florence, South Carolina. Where would he recommend she go to church? And Dr. Rice said, you go over there to the Florence Baptist Temple. And she came here, and this little black woman said to me in the 1970s, is it okay if I come to your church? I said, my God, why would you even have to ask the question Everybody's welcome at this church. Everybody's wanted at this church, Shirley. And I baptized her, and she's been here ever since. One of the most faithful members of this church, gives out more tracts, witnesses to everybody she comes into contact with. You don't know where those tracts are going to go. You don't know where that witness is going to end up. You don't know when that seed is going to come up. And so, despite what the world says, that we're antiquated and dinosaurs and boring and irrelevant, in spite of what the world says, we're going to keep on doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against them. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please. Thank you so much. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning.